Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will, be, or they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Thank you, Caleb. So we're in Mark 12 today, and after this, we're going to invite everybody to a meal in the gym in the fellowship hall. I'm not sure what we call it. If Pastor Allen was here, he would tell me. But we're going to invite you to do that. But before we do, we want to pause and look into God's Word. And we're walking through the Gospel of Mark every Sunday, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and understanding what it is, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the first verse of Mark says, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here we come to chapter 12 and what Caleb has read for us. Um, The context is that this is the third day of what we sometimes call the Holy Week, or the third day leading up to the crucifixion and then resurrection of Christ. Um, Jesus is in the temple, and the religious leaders are ready for him. They're not ready to receive him gladly, but they're ready to get him in a trap. And so as we celebrate baptism, this is a very appropriate passage. Actually, it just, by God's sovereignty, happens that a, ba- that a passage that mirrors the death, 
resurrection, and new life in Christ is seen right here in this passage. So as I describe to you this passage, we can also understand what it means for these young men to be baptized, what it can mean for you and me to follow Jesus. So to start with, in verse 13 of this passage, it says that they sent some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And so we start with a trap that is set, a plot that is there to get him, but this trap was not yet the cross. They were trying to trap him, and it says in his talk, it might say in your version, in his words, um, the word is logos. They were going to trap him, they were going to trap the logos, the word of God made flesh, in his own words. That was kind of foolish, as men can be. And we're going to see in this passage three different questions. Two of them are meant to trap him, and the third one seems like a spontaneous question from one of the religious leaders who is overcome with the answers that Christ has given him and asks a very sincere question. So what we're going to look at then is three tests or three questions, and then three compassionate or three answers from Jesus that free us You know, traps are usually meant to keep somebody, but we're going to see three answers from Christ that actually give us freedom. And thirdly, three conclusions that we should should understand about receiving Christ. So the title of this message, if Alice could help me out, is Good News for Receivers. Um, We're going to contrast those who reject Christ and those who receive Christ. And so um, this is especially appropriate as two are making a, prof- uh, a public profession that they are receiving Christ today. So um, let's pray before we start. I want to ask you to pray with me that the Lord will speak to you through his word today and direct all of us to follow Christ. Father, we thank you that um, though men would have tried to overthrow your purposes that in every word you answer, you give us life and you give us hope. I pray for some of those here who may need a word of freedom. They're feeling trapped themselves. They're feeling potentially confused and lost and depressed and hopeless, that you would use your word to minister hope to the heart. And we pray that for all of us, our lives would be lifted up to Christ. In Jesus' name, we pray these things, needing you today, Lord. Amen. So let's start with the first question, and we're going to see that to receive Christ, you must receive him as creator. So that's going to be the next slide, and we're going to go through verse 14 through 17. It says, And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and that you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. This is flattery. It's not sincere. We're going to see later words that sound like this but are actually sincere. So they're giving him a lot of flattery at this point. And they they ask their question that they have well formulated to trap Jesus. They say, um, should we, okay, I'm sorry, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So what's the trap behind this question? This is one of the more famous statements of Jesus, so it's very likely you've heard uh, a sermon or an explanation of this passage, but um, first of all, we need to understand the people that were there, the Bible says, are Pharisees or right-wing nationalists, 
and Herodians, left-wing liberals. Those are the two groups. Both of them are Jews who have come to trap Jesus. And their question about lawfulness is a trick because they're really talking about two different laws, the law of God or the law of Rome. The law of Rome would say that you have to pay Caesar. The law of God, as the Jewish national would have understand it, that they should not be subject to Gentiles and to pay Caesar is to be a traitor to your country. So if they were to pay Caesar, if Jesus were to say, yes, you should pay your taxes, then Jesus would be automatically disqualified as the Messiah to all of the people who were following him in Jerusalem. If he said, no, don't pay your taxes because God is the only one who should receive worship, then they would have been able to have him arrested by the Romans as a uh, rebellious cult leader who is stirring up the people against Rome. And so this, they thought, was a yes or no question. Um, what they really wanted to show with this question, or the question they're really, the point they're really getting at, is that it doesn't make any practical sense in this fallen world that we're in to follow Jesus. That's really the point that they're trying to say. Because one way, either way you go, it's not going to make sense. I think that we come to, when we determine whether we're going to follow Christ from a very young age, teenagers on up, we're confronted with the practical impracticability of following Jesus. You might say, should I seek my own career and what's good for me, or should I seek first the kingdom of God? Should I seek to marry this girl who I want because I want her, or should I seek God and just be a single person the rest of my life. And we give these practical impossibilities to God that we think are impossible. And so, what doesn't make practical sense to you about following Christ with your whole heart? What about giving every moment and every day and completely the way these guys have said, I'm buried in Christ, meaning I am dead to myself. What part of that do you think makes no practical sense? That's what these Herodians and Pharisees were bringing to Jesus. Now let's look at his answer. Um, first of all, he draws attention directly to their motives, and he says, why do you put me to the test? And uh, I'm always impressed. Uh, I don't know what, ha what it happened like in real time, but I imagine it was pretty quick. And you know you know somebody who's smarter than you because their answers are faster than yours? Um, I, I do some witnessing on campus right down here at Henry Ford with some of these men here. And Randy is always fast with an answer. And I just sit there and I have to think about five or ten minutes, formulate an answer in my mind, and then I said, hey, let me say something. Then I say something. I'm the slow thinker. We were at a conference last week and Dayon and a few guys uh, that, that, were, that were there, they were getting together with, uh, from Lansing. They asked me a question. They said, um, Did God, does God give people cancer? That was a yes or no question. And I immediately gave just the worst possible answer to that question because I, I got you know, nervous like, I'm a pastor, I should know the answer to this question. And I gave like a maybe D minus answer. I, it might have been on the verge of an F. Half an hour later, I said, hey, Dayon, can I have a, a go at that question again? And, he's, and I, I gave him the answer that I thought about after a half an hour, and he said, yeah, that's a much better answer than your first answer. So Jesus' answers, though, I think they were like immediate, 
Uh, first of all, he knew it was coming before it was coming. He's God of all universe. But then he gives this answer that immediately talks to their motives. Because he knows what their motives are. It was a trap. And he says this, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So the denarius, you've maybe heard this, or Roman coin. There are many different um, types of coins, but the one they they think it might have been was one with Tiberius Caesar Augustus on one side, his face on it, and it said around it, Tiberius, son of Augustus. Now, Augustus was considered deified as Octavian, who had taken the name Augustus to mean God. So Caesar, the son of God, was on one side. That's what was written. So he says, what's the image and what's the inscription? It was the picture of Caesar written around it, Caesar, the son of God, basically. And on the other side, a picture of a goddess or potentially Caesar's mother who could have been considered also a goddess. And it says Pontiff Maxim, which was short for Pontifus Maximus or the great priest or the high priest. And so Jesus says, what's written on this? And I think it it could have been even a trap that some people say that they had in their possession this idolatrous coin that that says Caesar, the son of God, the great high priest these religious people trying to trap him. But they say it's Caesar's image, and he says this, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled. So what was Jesus's answer? What are the things that are Caesar's and what are the things that are God's? Now, they're holding a denarius. So this was clearly printed in the image of Caesar. So the image of Caesar is limited in its scope. No, no matter how large the Roman kingdom was it, was, it had its beginning and it had its borders. And so the things that are Caesar's are limited in their scope. The things that are God's are unlimited in their scope. Everything that contains his image, which is man. You've heard of maybe the Latin phrase imago Dei, which is the image of God. And you and I, Genesis says, are created in the image of God. So when we baptize people, we are baptizing the image of God, saying, I give myself back to God. So, um, but what is the things of Caesar? They are also derivatives of power. That means that wealth and all of the things that Caesar had, including the metals that made the coins, were from God. So they were Caesar's, but they were, he derived them from God, whereas the things that are God, God's are derived from no man. God is the uncreated creator. The things that are Caesar's, there he was a human pretending to be God. Jesus standing in front of them was a human, fully human, who also was fully God, who before time God created the world by his word. The word was made flesh and dwelt among them and came to the temple that day. The things that are Caesar's is his power was abusive, corrupt, and uncaring. You know, I I don't know, I hope you pay your taxes, but if you don't, they will make sure you do, right? God similarly is owed by us or we owe him, I don't know how, if I said that correctly, we owe him all that we are. But his power, not being corrupt and abusive and uncaring, is good and kind and cares for us. 
So when he says this word render, this is the word um, that it doesn't, it's, it's different than pay. Maybe your translation says the word pay to, to, to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's, but a better word is to render. And we don't use that word very much, because, but that word is a very specific word that means to pay something you owe. So to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's is the way we pay the tax man, which is you were born here, so you may not like the reality that you have to pay taxes or the amount that you have to pay. I don't think anybody would complain if they had to pay less, but it's the reality. And if you don't accept the reality, the reality is gonna come find you. Render to God the things that are God's is similar. It is very possible that we to owe yourself to God and not be willing to pay him, and that is going to come back much worse than the tax man because he has given you everything. So should that scare us? Now, some of us have the idea about God that we should see him as a very uh, only gracious, kind, and loving, but he is also the originator of all that we are. So before we understand his grace, we need to understand his claim of authority over our lives. That has to come first. So what exactly has God given you? Well, he says that he's given us our daily bread. So everything that you'll eat today, when I hope you pray and thank the Lord before you eat, the reason we do that is we acknowledge that it comes from him. He's given you, you your strength. The book of Psalms says our strength and our redeemer. So he's given you every bit of strength that you have. If you're in university and high school and you find yourself to be a smart person who gets good grades and you feel very good about yourself because of that, every bit of that intelligence comes from somewhere and you have derived it from God. Um, this very day comes from him. The Bible says this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. In fact, every breath that you breathe comes from God. And at the moment that he would like, you will stop breathing that breath. The book, in the book of Acts, Paul says, in him we move and breathe and have our being. That is that everything about every day and every breath that you take comes from him. So when we render to God the things that are God's, we give back to him the things that belong to him, which in every possible sense is everything you have and are. So it always, the answer that Jesus gives is, it always makes sense. It always makes practical sense to render myself to my good creator. Um, I, I was reading a book this week, I was re it's about the, in, the uh, Native Americans in Missouri, the Sioux tribe, and I was very interested about the religion of the Sioux people, and um, they, they have been, they had been in, our, in this continent for centuries uh, before um, most of our ancestors showed up. Maybe you, like my wife, have some Native American in you, but the Sioux uh, tribe have a habit. Every morning when they wake up, they go down to the river and they said it's the Missouri River where they lived around, but I'm sure they lived around other waters as well. And they would wash themselves, face the rising sun, and thank the Creator for their day. It was very interesting to me that it says they would not start a day 
without each person individually going down to the river. And, not, and his wife, the man's wife was not allowed to go with him. And he would go face the rising sun and thank the Creator for that day. Now, the Sioux tribe didn't have the specific revelation of Christ and his word, but they had that humanity to understand that we came from an uncreated creator that they owe themselves to and that they owe everything about themselves to. I would tell you that the natural law will tell you that you are not an independent agent who has independent energy of yourself, that you owe and should render to God all the things that are God's. So, um, what, are we, what is it about baptism that we are buried with him? We are giving ourselves completely to the lordship of Christ without reservation. Richard Wormbrand was a, um, a Romanian Lutheran pastor when the communists came from Russia and took over Romania. If you've never read his book, Tortured for Christ, or some of his wife's books, Sabina, I think they have that in the library that you can borrow here right behind the auditorium. Um, Richard Wormbrand was a pastor who resisted the communists, and he resisted them by gathering in a church when they said you can't gather in a church, and by sharing Christ when they said you can't share Christ. So he resisted them in that, that kind of way, not with arms. And during the time of the communists, they would take people who wanted to be baptized, and he would take them to the city zoo in Budapest, or I'm sorry, in Bucharest. And he would take them to the lion's cage. He tells this story in his book, Tortured for Christ. And he would say, I won't baptize you until you face these lions and realize that this may be the death that you will face because you're being baptized. And if you're not willing to do that, I can't baptize you. Now, we don't live in that sort of reality in the United States of America, but I would say the same thing to our two brothers and to all who claim Christ, that to render to God the things that are God's is an absolute and total claim upon your life, even unto death. Now, that might not seem to make sense to you unless you go to the next question, which is about the resurrection. So uh, going on to verse 18 brings us to the second question, the Sadducees. Now, these were the left-wing liberals. Uh, they did not believe in the afterlife. They did not believe in the resurrection. They came to him in verse 18, and they, and they said, who say that there is no resurrection? And they asked him a question saying, teacher. And then they give him the story. We've already read it, but the story is basically that a man had a wife and she died and she married his brother and he, he died and then so on and so forth. And seven brothers were married to the same woman and they said, whose wife will she be um, in eternity, so in the resurrection? And so this is one of those gotcha questions. I, I, a few of my friends here like to say that, gotcha. This is one of those gotcha questions. Because they thought they had a scenario that meant that to follow Jesus made no logical sense. So the first question was one about practical sense, and the second one was one about logical sense. And they said it doesn't make any logical sense to believe in the resurrection because... Um, it's just not, it's not going to work. You know, how's one woman going to be seven women's uh, husbands? And, and you might have that question. What, how does eternity work? And are we all just going to sit on clouds and play harps and, 
And are we all just going to wear white robes and quietly, you know, walk around as if we were in some eternal library? Or what's it going to look like? And we think that maybe there's some logical reason that eternity with God in Christ makes no sense. Um, so the, the, the issue with these Sadducees was that they only believed the Torah, meaning they only believed the books of Moses, the first five. They did not accept the Psalms and they did not accept the prophets, minor or major, as a part of the Bible. And since the, they believe that the Torah does not expressly talk about heaven or expressly talk about eternity or the eternal or eternal life, that there was no eternal life and there was no heaven. So they didn't believe in the resurrection. What they really wanted to show is that it doesn't make any logical sense in the next life for us to receive Christ in this one. So a few of us talk to students like this every week at the university, right? Who say it doesn't make any logical sense that Jesus is the Son of God. So this, Jesus is going to give us an answer that frees us. Look what he says here in verse 24. He says, is this not the reason you are wrong? And then at the end of his talk to them, he says, you are quite wrong. That word for quite wrong is delusional or um, polu planaste in Greek, which means you are quite delusional. You might just say, he said, y'all are crazy or delusional. And so someone who does not believe in the resurrection, Jesus is saying, is the one that's under a delusion. We often think that this is just an argument of ideas, but truly this is a delusion that comes from Satan that people would not believe in life after this life. So he says that there are two things that they were ignorant of in verse 24. He says, because you know neither, and he says two things, the scriptures nor the power of God. So first of all, the scriptures, um, this is the writings of God is what it was called in, uh, in the original languages. And he says, what is written? So Jesus is going to answer them from the Torah, the book, the only one that they believe in. And he says this to respond to them, verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, neither will they marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? So he's going to answer them from the book that they, only books that they believe, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, being Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Why did Jesus quote this passage? Well, he was referencing the God who was telling Moses about his eternal covenant with his people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is bringing to mind that God made an eternal covenant with Abraham where he gave him an eternal blessing and in, in chapter 15 where he said that he has an eternal righteousness. And in, ver in chapter 15, verse 1 of Genesis, God said to Abraham, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield and your great reward. So what, God, what Jesus was saying to them is, how does it make any sense that God would give these eternal promises in the Torah to the, his people if, he was, if they were going to die and that was it? So he is not God of the dead, Jesus said, but God of the living. That is, that, that is like saying God is not God of the nothing, he's God of things that are or that things that continue. 
So there is good reason or logic, Jesus says, to receive Christ. And I like to say it like this when I speak especially to students. I like to start with the question, do you believe that we exist because someone that we're created or through a process of evolution without a creator? We'll start there. So if you say there is no God, there's no further place to go. If there is a God and we have some something or power that created us, the next question is because uh, if he created the, if we were created, then the creator is must be a person because I'm a person. He could not have just been a power that created me like the Taoists believe. Because he's a person, he must be communicating with us. So to receive Christ, you must receive his communication, or you must receive all of scripture. This is why we say, and I've started to say this, I heard this from Alistair Begg recently, that it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And if you start with just the first few chapters of Genesis, you're like, I really like Ecclesiastes, or I really like this chapter, or this book. Uh, God has communicated with us from the beginning in a progressive way until Christ, all that he wants us to know. So how do we know, for example, we're having this conversation that the snake in, Rome, in Genesis 3 is actually Satan? Well, the rest of God's word and his revelation tells us that. How do we know about life and life eternal? Well, the, the rest of God's word past the Torah continues to explain that. How do we know what Jesus meant in certain things he said? Well, a lot of the New Testament that Paul wrote explains it to us. So to receive Christ is to receive all of the scripture that God has communicated to us. But also, Jesus said, you don't know the power of God. This is the dunamin of God or the dynamite of God. So how could we, seeing that God made us out of nothing, the power of the logos of the word, not think that he could make us to re-be? This word to the resurrection is literally the word to re-be, to be again. We were, and then we died, and we will re-be. Now, if we believe that God created us, Jesus is saying, then to believe in the power of God to create us is to believe in the power of God to make us to live again. The moment, you know that moment in every Disney princess movie when the curse is lifted? You guys seen that? I was just watching the Beauty and the Beast one, just to refresh my memory about that. And everything is lost and you think it's over, but the beast kind of rises and he's twirling around and he turns into a human again. And then as the hero has risen, then that begins to affect everything else. And every other dead tree comes alive again. And all of the dead fields turn into green. And all of the dark skies turn blue. And all of the people who had a curse and they were cups or uh, candlesticks, they turn into the servants of the castle again. And the curse is lifted. And you think, yeah, but that's just a fairy tale. And the vision really only is a fairy tale until the hero rises. But when the beast actually rose, if he, if he rose, then that begins the lifting of the curse that will someday extend to the whole kingdom. And so what Jesus is looking forward to with the power of God and what we symbolize in the act of baptism is that Christ, our hero, rose. And the fact that he rose means that he has begun the power of God that's going to spread through the whole kingdom. 
And it begins in the heart of him who receives him. So this is really good news for the person who will receive the reality of the resurrected Christ. Without the resurrected Christ, we have no scripture that we can rely on, and we have no power of God. But with the resurrected Christ, we have no longer just a fairy tale, but that reality that all those fairy princess movies find in the deepest desires of people's hearts that that's what we really need and hope for. So if you come to Jesus like a Sadducee and say, prove to me that there is life after this life because this part doesn't make sense and my finite mind doesn't understand how this could work and how we've had so many conversations with so many at the university who will say Jesus could not have been God and they'll give the reason that it makes no logical sense then I will say, just because your finite mind cannot understand the power of God and that you're ignorant of the scriptures doesn't mean that it's not a reality that's based in, his, in the historical resurrection of our Savior. And so, this is an answer that frees us. And if you today are coming looking for hope in the, in the dark skies that are around you in your life, or the sickness that may lead to even death in your family and your life, and all of the loss that you've experienced or that you're afraid that you're going to experience and all of the anxiety that goes along with that loss, Jesus is saying, don't be ignorant of the scriptures or the power of God because that is the message that the curse has been lifted and for those who will receive it, they have joined his kingdom and are going to experience the resurrection. The last question that they ask, I'm going to go through very fast because I'm going to be done in four minutes. Um, to receive Christ, you must receive him as your greatest affection. So one scribe watching this comes to Jesus, and he has a very sincere question. He says, what's the most important of all the commandments? The scribes believe there were over 600 commandments. And I think this was a very sincere question. Jesus saw the sincerity of his question, and he quoted for him the Shamach, which in, which in the Jewish Old Testament was that thing that every Jewish child would hear when they were born and throughout their whole life in the morning and before they go to bed at night, hear, O Israel. It comes from that word shamach or hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that's correct belief. And then he said, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Jesus says is it's for those to receive Christ is to is to, to, to make him your greatest affection. This word affection is one that we don't use very much anymore, but if you speak Spanish, you know it is afección, and we use it more often in Spanish, um, but it's the same word agape that in Greek we translate as love. So to the affection though of your hearts, I think is a very effective way of understanding it, that to receive Christ is not to just have the right order of theology. We can't baptize Luke and Seth based on only them believing the right things. Isaac also asked them, is he your Lord and Savior? Are your affections toward him? That means that we love him above all things. That's why it says, with all your heart and your soul, your mind and your strength. So that is to say, Jesus' answer was that no rituals of sacrifice, this man says, 
are enough to make up for wrongly placed affections. The scribe says, you have said correctly. You truly have said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart and with all the understanding, with all your strength and to love one's neighbor as yourself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He is reflecting Isaiah chapter one where God said, your sacrifices do not please me. What I want is your hearts. So this is really freeing news and great news for those of us who realize we have not done and could not make enough sacrifices for God. Maybe you've thought, if I just do more for him, he will love me. And Jesus is saying, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul is to give him your affection because he first loved us. First John says, we love God for one reason, because he first loved us. Now, if that doesn't far surpass religion and far surpass the state, the love of God that he first loved us. So I wanna conclude with these thoughts. What does God want us to do? And according to the three questions, first of all, render your whole life to Christ. Pay it because he is owed it, because it's his. My life is his, my breath is his, everything that I have is his. Die to self and selfish ambition. It is the only thing that makes practical sense. Secondly, know the scriptures and the power of his resurrection. Don't be ignorant of them, because those are the things that save. And finally, give God your whole affection. This is the message leading up to the cross. I told you at the beginning that the, this is the third day of the Holy Week. The whole second half of the book of Mark is leading up to the Holy Week, and we're going to celebrate Easter this year with the last sermon from the book of Mark in the last chapter, and as we go through, there, through that, Jesus says, you are close to the kingdom of heaven. Why does he tell this man you're close to the kingdom of heaven? Because Jesus is just a couple days away from the cross. This was on a Tuesday, Jesus would be arrested on a Thursday, crucified on Friday, and resurrected from the dead to the glory of God on Sunday. And that man, coming to Christ with a sincere heart, was as close to the kingdom as Sunday and the resurrection of Christ. We're about to partake in the Lord's Supper together. This is a second of the ordinances of what God has given us. He gave us first for those who are baptized to partake in the Lord's Supper. We are showing the gospel of Christ in the Lord's Supper as we take his body and his blood, the way in baptism we showed his death and resurrection. This is our communion and this is our hope, the power of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've brought by the power of the Spirit these two new brothers into your family through faith, and that we can say that publicly through baptism, that they have been received into this church family. We thank you that we are not here alone, that this life is not all there is, but in the baptism we point toward the power of the resurrected Christ to resurrect these two guys from the dead. And we look forward to your return, Lord Jesus.